Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of First Universalist Church, a Unitarian Universalist congregation located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a radically welcoming and progressive faith community deeply committed to love, justice, spiritual growth, and living out our values in the world. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Yellow Roses. My mother loved yellow roses, and for her, yellow roses were about one thing, tangible evidence of my father's love for her. Twice a year, for 20 years, a dozen yellow roses arrived on her desk like clockwork, one for their anniversary and one for her birthday. She managed to completely ignore that every other day was awash in my father's cruelty and infidelity with those yellow roses. When received twice a year for 20 years, 12 yellow roses becomes 48, becomes 4,080 pieces of proof to blind her from what she couldn't bear to see. My eyes saw it all. And I knew she was wrong because at age five, until I was 25, the 4,080 roses each came from me, no matter that the card read, from your loving husband. Mother-daughter relationships are complicated. (laughs) Yet, no matter how complex, losing our mothers almost always seems to up the ante. When my estranged mother died, Losing her seemed to dig into my heart like a rabid dog, and I became a little more than the rag doll that the dog shakes to and fro. The thing is, I never dreamed I would experience such heart-wrenching change when she died. We hadn't seen each other in almost 20 years. I'd grieved so many facets of our relationship during that time, worked to exhaustion to heal, From the traumas and abandonments in my past, I became a licensed psychologist specializing, of course, in complex PTSD and early relational trauma. (laughs) Each choice was a piece of plate in my armor, shiny and ready to don if she ever died. Then she died. And spoiler alert, I was a magpie, not a warrior. I collected every shiny treasure that caught my eye. My collection, though, had never been a suit of armor. My shiny treasures turned out to be pieces of foil from chewing gum wrappers, brightly colored bits of glass, the detritus that life leaves in its wake. Still, while neither substantial nor protective, like armor, Each was a gift of divine grace that demanded eye change, pushing the boundaries of my heart in ways I could never have anticipated. Sometimes when I'm at an impasse, I examine each piece anew. Always surprised how many gifts have come with each begrudging, painstaking change. Reconnections with kindred spirits believed lost long ago an increased focus on the family we've created, an urgency to touch others with my creativity and compassion 
an understanding and appreciation for connection that has taught me to sit comfortably with someone in their pain without the need to make things better. Still, each coin has two sides, as does my ever-changing grief. The days when I long to vanish, when I'm certain I will crawl out of my skin. Days I'm numb. Days when the faint scent of her perfume as I hurry through a department store causes my knees to buckle. And days of black, soul-devouring sadness because I could never save her from herself. Perhaps the most significant and challenging change was discovering that I didn't need to save her after all. I needed to save myself. And the mind-blowing realization that I could both save myself and occasionally bring her some yellow roses. Come, let us worship together. Well, I feel like I could get up here each week and say, this week, dear God, this week. And this week feels worse. It feels heavier and harder. And like the hateful things that have been said have been turned toward violence again and again and again. And with this much pain in our country and in our lives, I know that there are moments when I want to turn away from all of it, when I want to say this is just too much. We've gone too far now. This is hard to take in. I don't want myself or others to be witness to so much human-generated suffering. Not our first responders, not our police, not our teachers, not our hearts, not our kids, none of us. I want it to stop. And it's not, and it hasn't. And so I come back to the question of what do we do when the pain is so much? What do we do when there is so much suffering in our own lives or in the lives of those we love, in the lives of those we don't know yet? And I remember what I've been taught here over and over again. We show up. We don't shut our hearts down. We show up literally or figuratively and we place ourselves next to those who are most harmed. We put ourselves right next to them, to each other, and we listen. And we listen for what they are asking for and we do that. We show up. That is what we are called to do in the face of great suffering and pain. We show up for ourselves and for each other and for those we haven't met yet. The other thing we do is we double down. We double down on our own spiritual lives and on our commitments to making what we long for real in the world. So today, I wanna to take us into that place of doubling down in our own spiritual lives. What is the work that we need to do as individuals and as a community of faith to make real the world that we long for? How do we keep ourselves grounded in the midst of this world and this life that has so many wild ups and downs and turns in it. So I'm going to bring us to a question that has been fundamental for my spiritual life and I'm going to share it with you and we'll jump in together. So the question is this, am I willing to be changed by what I hear? Am I willing to be changed by what I hear? This is a question at the heart of my spiritual life. It's a question that I got from the Quaker teacher and author Parker Palmer in the time that I spent with him trying to learn how to listen differently. 
He said that in our culture, most people listen half-heartedly at best. They listen to one another, sort of hearing what the other person is saying, but mostly plotting what they're gonna say next. They are thinking about how to justify their already created position, how to solidify who they are in the world, how to share what was happening similarly to them so that their story gets out there and the focus gets turned back onto ourselves. They're listening half-heartedly at best, he says. When we listen wholeheartedly, we come into the conversation willing to be changed by what we hear. Now, this is a radical place to begin, at least for me. And my kids will tell you this for sure, because they will tell you that there are times that before they even open their mouth, I am already correcting them for what I am sure they are about to say or do. They haven't even said anything yet. So clearly in those moments, I am not willing to be changed by what I hear because I'm not even hearing them. So I think you might identify with this. You might know familiar patterns and places in your life where you feel stuck and sure of exactly how things are gonna go. And what I'm asking is for us to live into this question. Are we willing to be changed by what we hear? Now, my aspirational self, my spiritual self knows that there's really only one right answer to this question, right? The answer is yes. I should always be willing to be changed, to be willing to hear at least what other people are saying. But I often struggle with this, and I struggle mightily with it. I'm grateful to know that Howard Thurman struggled with it too, because it means I'm not alone. There are times when we just want our boundaries to stay fixed and ourselves unbothered. There are times we want to be let alone so that we can rest. Times we want to stay stuck in our positions, hold firm in our beliefs. We want to know what our circle of comfort is and keep it intact. We want to keep our fixed ideas of how the world works in place. But I know that when I check in with myself, my deepest self, when I reconnect with who I am and who I want to be in this world, I know there's only one answer to this question. I and we are called to enlarge the boundaries of our hearts. That is the spiritual work. We're called to hold open the covenants we create and the promises we make so that there is always, always more room in our hearts and more room at the table. Now, I've been remembering lately one evening at my previous congregation that I served in New York. Now, I went to serve this particular congregation after a very steady, stable, 33-year ministry of a beloved colleague. The team of ministers I joined and that we arrived together at this congregation, well, we were all young and new and full of awesome ideas, we thought. <laughs> so we jumped in. We changed the wall hangings in the sanctuary. We changed the Christmas pageant and the music. We led worship without notes. We spoke extemporaneously. We greeted people out front. We brought theater into the service. Man, we were doing great things. And I'll tell you that one evening, the board of trustees met and they brought us in and they said, you're going a little too fast. There's a little too much change all at once. And after that meeting was over, I was left alone in the building with the board secretary. Now, I didn't know her well yet, but I had been told about her. In fact, I had been warned about her, to be more exact. She was older and a scientist, a professor, a humanist. She'd been a member of the church for decades. And somebody had mentioned to me that she had a family member who was also a Unitarian Universalist minister, who was the one she'd really hoped was going to get the job I was in. 
So I was set up not to like this person and to be worried about this person. And there I was, stuck in the building with her on a late night after this board meeting. And I was doing my best to get out of there as quickly as I could, but I couldn't. I was literally stuck. She is a person who moves slowly, and there was no polite way to scooch around her and make an exit. So I followed this woman down a very long, narrow hallway out to the parking lot, expecting that I was about to get an earful about how we, the young punk ministers, were totally ruining her church. And instead, she said something really different as she was shuffling steadily along in front of me. If you're not changing, you're dead, she said. If you're not changing, you're dead. It's science. It's simple. <laughs> Change is life. So maybe it was a shock that made this statement live within me so long now, or maybe just the simple clarity, but she was sure. Change is part of being alive. She knew this from her scientific background. She knew this to be true in her life. Change is essential to being alive. You can either resist it and die, or you can move with it. And she was moving with it. Change is essential to us. It breathes new life into our relationships and our communities. It keeps us living and growing as people and as communities of faith. I know that one of the biggest things that drew me into Unitarian Universalism as a teen was that in this faith, it was expected that we would change and grow, that we would let in new information, that we would let in new ideas, that we would be changed by the experiences of our lives and what we believed in would change too. So my faith story when I'm 15 and my faith story when I'm 50 are gonna be radically different. And I wanted that. I wanted a faith alive and changing with me as I learned and grew. And I bet that is part of why you are here too. This openness and expansion enlarging the boundaries of our hearts. We do this in our community, too, in the church, not just for us as individuals in our spiritual lives. We expect change. So every five years, our congregation charts a course toward a vision of who and how we want to be together. And when we are faithful to our call, we are inviting change into our community and how we do things together. We create these visionary goals to guide us and to hold us accountable to their work. We have four visionary goals for our congregation, and I live and breathe them. You probably don't as much, so I'll share the third one with you. It's the one I want to dig into a little bit today. Our third visionary goal says this about where we're going. First Universalist is a multiracial, multicultural, and intergenerational faith community of mutual caring and support where people bring all of who they are and welcome each other with joy. Our sense of who we are as a community of faith is ever expanding. This is who I wanna be with you. This is the work I want to be doing. This is the path we have charted, the direction we are going. Our sense of who we are as a community of faith is ever expanding, no bounds on our heart. This means creating true and authentic community. It means our allowing our sense of who we are to be ever expanding. It means welcoming each other with joy, whatever that means for us. This is the direction we're pointing ourselves in, and it is no easy goal. We've been doing some research on what makes a multicultural, multiracial, intergenerational community of faith 
happen? On what are those successful communities out there in the world? And here's the truth, there aren't many of them. Maybe you know this already. Fewer than one congregation in 10 can be considered even 20% multiracial in the United States. Fewer than one in 10. And eight out of 10 American churchgoers attend a congregation in which a single racial or ethnic group is in the vast majority. It was 70 years ago almost that Martin Luther King Jr. made his famous statement that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And he called for our congregations to become more diverse, but we haven't made a whole lot of progress. And I think that intuitively, we might know a little bit about why. For those of you who were here last week and heard the powerful call to worship that was given, you heard a little bit about one woman of color's experience of being a member of this church. She shared about how she's constantly being asked if she's new or if she's a guest, having to prove her existence here, what it feels like to simply exist in this largely white space. I know that I've heard from several African-American men in this congregation that even when they've been attending for years, even when they've been members for years, they are assumed to be the custodian. I know that there are church staff who are people of color here who aren't black men, who get asked if they're the caterer at church events, or they get approached by someone speaking Spanish, assuming that that's their native language, when really their family comes from India or Southeast Asia. I know that in this largely well-meaning, largely white space, being a person of color can feel uncomfortable week after week after week. And I know too that as we make changes and talk openly about the impact of race and racism and whiteness on ourselves and in our culture and in our church, this can also be very uncomfortable for white people. White supremacy culture prefers to operate in silence, thank you very much, or at least not to be openly identified. It likes to operate as the implicit norm and not be questioned. And most white folks have been trained to feel a whole lot more comfortable when matters of race and culture and systemic oppression and privilege are just not mentioned. There's one intentionally multiracial congregation I was listening to the two lead pastors talk about their experience. One of them is black and one is white. And they were talking about the heart of the ministry that they share together. And what they said over and over was, we needed to learn to be better brothers to each other. We needed to learn how to be better brothers to each other. They needed to learn how to listen, to really listen to one another, willing to be changed by what they heard, willing to take in the similar and very different life experiences of their sibling. Are we willing to be changed by what we hear? Are we willing to make room for something new to emerge, something we build together that is full of the spirit of life and love that responds to our faith's eternal call to draw the circle wider still? There are a few things I've been learning as we've been studying multiracial and multicultural congregations, and I wanna share a few of these things with you. First, and maybe most important, the drive to become a multicultural, multiracial community has to be based in the mission of who we are. It has to be at the center of who we are and what we're doing and how we understand ourselves. I think as universalists, if we take our charge seriously, we have that. Second, we have to do a lot more than just bring different people into our doors and bring different people together. As one intentionally multicultural congregation says, they had to do more than just get our members out of segregation 
and into the work of justice and reconciliation together. So more than just putting people of different backgrounds and races together, but getting them into relationship with one another, into the work of reconciliation and justice. Third, having people of color in leadership positions is absolutely key for churches that want to be multicultural. One pastor said, if you are reconciling, if you're serious about this, it means you are sharing power. Now we have a long way to go on this, on our staff, and we have been making some progress. I know that every time I look around at our board of trustees and I see that four out of the nine members of that group are people of color, it heartens me. I know that when I look at that circle of our board of trustees and I see that five out of the nine people serving are women, it heartens me. We have a long way to go and we are making progress. In multi-ethnic churches, I have heard white congregants talk at length about the need for sacrifice and humility and the spiritual value of learning how to live with discomfort. They talk about messing up, even when they're trying hard. They talk about the importance of listening deeply to the experiences of others, of accepting responsibility for the harms that they cause, about apologizing and beginning again, working to do things differently the next time. I know we are trying to do this. I know I am trying to do this. I know we will always have work to do here. And one final thing I'll share. This desire to become a multiracial, multicultural, intergenerational community of faith, it can't be based in illusions. We can't go into this work and this change thinking it's gonna be easy or simple and free of hard feelings. We'll probably get it done tomorrow. There'll be a lot of happy pictures. We can't think that is how it's gonna go. Because if we do, we will be wrong, very, very wrong. So if this work is hard, if it requires sacrifice and humility, if it requires sharing power and being open to change, if it won't always look like pretty pictures and it's guaranteed that we're gonna make mistakes that are real and really painful along the way, why are we doing this again? Luckily, the answer is very, very clear. The call of our faith is clear. Our job is, as it always has been as universalists, our job is to make real the vision of a love that knows no bounds here in this world. That is who we are, it is who we have always been. Our universalist faith says that there is no one outside the boundaries of God's love, no one outside the wide welcome of this universe. Our faith tells us that racism and white supremacy are flat out incompatible with what we believe. And our faith says that we cannot just live and act in isolation. We must live and act in community, trying to make real this world that we long for here, now, not in some distant, faraway heaven future. Here, that is our work. And I'll tell you, as I look around this week and last week and the week before, I know that our world needs us. It needs us to take this charge seriously. We are living in a world where people are seeing each other, not even as people, where the divisions are so deep that we see each other as other to the degree that we can kill one another, that we can dismiss one another and try to erase one another. This is not the world we want to live in. It is not the world we are called to create. So we have work to do as individuals and as a community. We have real work to do. Enlarging the boundaries of our hearts in here, in our own personal spiritual lives, in here, in our community of faith, and out there in the world.
we have very real work to do, enlarging the boundaries of our hearts. So I ask you, what is your work to do? Where do you need to enlarge the boundaries of your heart? Is it with some part of yourself you don't care for? Is it with someone in your family or your circle of contacts and acquaintances or relations that you need to open your heart to? Is it someone you haven't even met yet, a perspective that is brand new to you? Where do you need to enlarge the boundaries of your heart? Where is that work for you to do today, tomorrow, this week? Let us show up for each other, holding one another accountable, being next to one another when we are in pain. Help us to open our hearts to ourselves, to each other, to this community of faith and this world, that together we might make real change, that we might create the world we long for. Let's do this together. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, and together we give, receive, and grow in the universalist spirit of love and hope. To learn more about who we are and our ministry, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.